Let me open us up with a word of prayer. We'll divide up into our groups to pray, and then we'll be back over here at 9.30 to begin our teaching this morning. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we, at least in the context of our lives, are back to normal this Sunday. Lord, we thank you that we are able to be here to to worship you and that we have the comforts that we do. But even this morning, Lord, there are a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ in different places in the world who are suffering mightily in Mexico City and Puerto Rico and other Caribbean islands. And Lord, we don't want to forget them. They're your people as well. And Lord, even in the midst of tragedy, I don't doubt there are some people that are hearing the gospel and they're seeing because of the devastation around them the reason and the necessity of a Savior. I just pray, Lord, that we wouldn't, wouldn't squander the privileges you've given us, that we would use our time to learn and grow, but also that we would use our time to apply the truth and live lives that shine a light into our community. Lord, I pray for all of our time together today that you would be honored and glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, good morning. This morning we are going to get back into our study of 1 Peter. And when we left off about a month ago, not quite a month ago, we are found ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 2, specifically 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. And I introduced this material um, almost a month ago, and then we had a week of Q&A, and then we had a sovereign disruption to our teaching schedule from the Lord. And so now we're back, but if you were taking notes, you might recall that when I introduced and taught on this about a month ago, there were actually... I taught on verses 13 and 14, but I basically, I divided verses 13 to 17 into four parts, and we had covered part one. So, I'm going to sort of review our teaching to try and reset the table where we are so we can get our minds around it to remind you of what we've already covered. And then I'm going to continue on and talk about verse 15 this morning, and it will actually be point two of the four parts that I have for this material. As we came into 1 Peter chapter 2, as I mentioned several times previously, we're in verse 13 to 17, this little block, but verses 11 and 12 marked a transition. Verses 11 and 12 really began to bridge the gap between initial truth and exhortations and theology that Peter gave at the beginning of his letter and it's transitioning into how to live out that theology, which is what we'll occupy ourselves with for the remainder of the letter. There certainly is still theology, but Peter is now practically showing us how to live out these truths. Verses 11 and 12 say, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So this transition to begin dealing with our lives more tangibly and practically in a lot of different areas begins with this general exhortation, stay away from the sinful desires and the sinful heart that will cause you to stumble. And recognize that by living the right way, even when the world accuses believers of wrongdoing, your life can be an evangelistic testimony such that if you live 
correctly if you live in obedience to the Lord. Some unbelievers are going to see that and they're going to be drawn to the gospel. Then we get into verses 13 to 17. And I'm going to read this section in its entirety, again, just to sort of set the stage. But it's really building off of this exhortation. In fact, I think in some respects, it's showing you in this particular area of life how to keep your behavior excellent, which is what verse 12 told us to do. So follow along as I read verses 13 to 17. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people... Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. When I introduced this material long ago, I said this is really showing us four aspects of living in God's will. I'm not enamored with my outline, I don't love it, but it's just a teaching tool. And the first aspect of living in God's will is that God's will is for his children to submit to every form of human government. This is an unequivocal mandate. This is a command. This is imperative. Submit yourselves. This isn't a circumstance where you're being told, as you're being beat into submission, go ahead and go along with it. This is saying, no, you shouldn't be forced into this. You willingly subordinate your interest and your desires, and you follow the government authorities that God's placed over you. It's a command that is calling us not just to our behavior but to our attitudes and he makes it really clear this isn't so that our particular country at a given point in time of history will be better this is because of and for the Lord submit yourselves for the Lord's sake this is as the bearers of his name as his representatives as his children Our submission to the government is because of that, is for that, is for Him. I reminded us when I covered this in greater detail, even Jesus subordinated His interest to His Heavenly Father. John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now this is Jesus, the God-man, saying that he submitted to the Father's will. Submission is a dirty word in some Christian circles. It conjures up wrong images, but the reality is our whole life is submission. We submit to Christ. We submit to one another. We submit to our church leaders. And within the relationship of marriage, we have submission. On and on it goes. But in this context, he's making it clear. One of the duties of submission is to the civil authorities over us. Peter gave a couple of illustrations, whether to a king, the word translated in some versions, emperor, is correct. That was the ultimate authority at that time. Or to governors as sent by him, that's a subordinate role. I mentioned before, Pontius Pilate would have fit within that particular category. But here's the ultimate point of Peter. It's not to deal with the various merits of types of government. What he is saying is within the governments that are over you, You submit to the highest and you submit to the lowest. 
Every single government official of any government at any level is included. And as I covered when we introduced this material, for us in America in a bureaucratic state, that's far-reaching. Somebody like me, I live in the city of Safety Harbor. There's a government over Safety Harbor. Then there's a government over Pinellas County. Then there's a government over the state of Florida. Then there's a government over the United States. At any level, at every level, we are to submit to them. Now, the only exception is if they actively try and get us to sin, to disobey God. But apart from that, we submit. Now, Peter, in this context, laid out one of the purposes of the divinely ordained government. He's talking about, or two governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers or the praise of those who do right. One of the functions of government is to punish evil. The idea there is actually vengeance. We don't take vengeance, but God ordains civil government to punish evil. Likewise, civil government can praise those who have done the right thing. That's a simple overview of God-ordained government. And what Peter is teaching is consistent with what Paul taught in Romans 13.1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. This is the ultimate issue. This is where our belief in the absolute sovereignty and power of the God of the universe intersects with our daily lives. Because for most of us, we don't agree with a lot of what our government does. And we shouldn't be surprised because if you look, there are people in the government. And what do we know about people? They're sinners. So we shouldn't be shocked, but the reality is, at times, we can be guilty of thinking, well, things are so bad today, it's all different. But the reality is, as I told you with a little historical discussion of the man named Nero, the man that held the title of king or emperor at the time of the writing of First Peter, our leaders, as bad as they are at any given moment, aren't quite so bad. But here's the point. Even if they are so bad, we still submit. I can speak with some passion about this because of my own struggle for many years with this very issue. A struggle that I still fight against. Because I'm an American and I do love America and I pay attention to politics, and I vote. And unfortunately, for example, living in California for 18 years, I lost all the time. I could tell you who was going to win in California, just whoever I voted for was not it. <laughs> just mark your ballots. Whoever I vote for, they're not going to get an office. But here's the point. Was God not sovereign over California? Of course he is. Is God not sovereign over Florida? Of course he is. Is God not sovereign over the United States? Of course he is. And at any given moment in time, God is the one who raises up leaders. That's truth from Scripture. And when we find ourselves not just disappointed with the government, but actively fighting against it, mumbling and groaning and complaining, not doing something 
productive, but rather doing something destructive, either by the words out of our mouths or the attitudes of our hearts or even our actions. The issue isn't the government. The issue is our view of God. Paul went further in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Verse 2 is where Paul and Peter complement each other. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Now, of course, Christians can exercise political rights. Christians can exercise appropriate legal rights. I pointed out the fact that, I think in our Q&A, that even Paul, at one point, appealed to Rome. He had a right as a Roman citizen, and it wasn't sin for him to take advantage of the legal system to defend himself. But politics and our legal rights should never be the prime driver of our existence. Unless the government would compel us to sin, we are supposed to submit. Interesting, even Jesus submitted to wicked men. I read the scripture, I think about it, and it comes and it just puzzles me. Not puzzles me in one sense, it's just what was going on in Jesus' heart. But Pilate and Jesus were having a discussion, and Jesus make it clear, look, the reason you have authority over me is because... It's from God. But Jesus didn't say, you little weasel, I'm going to knock you out. No, he, he said, the reason you have authority over me, Jesus recognized he was under that authority. I, I know us, I know me. We would have called the 10,000 angels. The, the point of all of this is that God calls us as Christians, as Christian citizens in the application to our lives in the country of America, to be peaceful, submissive people. That runs against every grain of the American ethic. It's interesting, First Peter 2, 1 and 2 a simple overview of what should be our goal as Christians. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, verse 2, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. I, you don't have to be a pastor to recognize that the representatives of Christianity in America don't always try and leave tranquil and quiet lives. In fact, a lot of times we're loud and noisy. Not necessarily living in godliness and dignity, but figuring, hey, if they can do it, we can do it. We're going to get our way. A little phrase in Titus 3, 1 and 2. Paul, again, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, the beginning of verse 2, to malign no one. Well, there goes all our political discussions. we got nothing else to say. To be peaceable, gentle, 
showing every consideration for all men. I've said it many times. I came to faith, I believe, in 1993. And from 1993 until today in 2017, the verses I just read have not characterized my Christian existence. And most churches I've been in have not been comprised of people living this way. Because we're still human. We still get angry. We still get frustrated. How dare they do this? I can't believe they think that's a good idea. Look what they're doing to our country. On and on it goes. And we forget that we're just aliens and strangers, even in America. This is where we live, but this is not the eternal kingdom of God, despite what you might have heard. The new Jerusalem, for all eternity, is in America. And I've heard people talk about America not far from that kind of ideal. So that's a little bit more of an introduction and a review than I normally would do. But it's been such a long time. And because of the impacts of verse 15, I wanted to get us all back thinking correctly. So four aspects of living in God's will. The first is that God's will is for his children to submit to every form of human government. The second is this. God's will is that our submission will convict unbelievers. God's will is that our submission will convict unbelievers. I want to explain that a little bit. Verse 15 says this. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Here's what's so significant about our individual application of verses 13 and 14 to our hearts and lives. For such is the will of God. How many of you in the course of your, and this is more rhetorical, you don't have to raise your hands, but in the course of your Christian life, have you seen something about finding the will of God? Discovering the will of God. There are books written, help you find the will of God. There are online tests you can take to find the will of God. All kinds of things to show you the will of God. Well, let me show you the will of God. And it's not a test, and you don't have to take it. It's just black and white in your Bibles. For such is the will of God. Every Christian I know that's truly a Christian, if you say, do you want to be in God's will? They say, of course. 13 and 14. For such is the will of God. If you can fight and wage war against your own heart and make your own heart submissive to government even when you don't like it, you're doing the will of God. Again, I've already read from Romans 13, 1 and 2, the fact remains if you refuse to obey this command, the issue isn't the government. The issue is you're opposing God. And let me assure you, that's a dangerous thing to do for any of us. We don't oppose God lightly. There's a word for that. It's called sin. The will of God is for you and I to submit to all the government He has placed over us in America while we are citizens here. To refuse to submit in any fashion is to rebel against God Himself. 
And it's to actively oppose the revealed will of God for you and for me. But here's the ultimate point of verse 15. Certainly it's telling us what God's will is. But it's the impact and the application of our submission that I want to highlight. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. This is one of the reasons why we submit. This is one of the outcomes of Christian submission. And if I can summarize it before I explain it in detail, basically what Peter is saying is that a Christian will be vindicated even before unbelievers if we submit to the government. If we live those quiet and peaceable and tranquil lives. For such is the will of God, that by doing right. In this context, that by doing right is not general good moral behavior, although certainly that's called for in other places. It is referring specifically to our submission to the government, all those things we talked about. And he says, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men by obeying the will of God and submitting. Now, what is he talking about there? I think... It's alluding to what I read this morning from verse 12. If you look back up at verse 12, he said, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Everything that follows is just various behavior in various realms of life. Verses 13 and 14 are dealing with government. But he says, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers. Here's the point. Unbelievers make accusations against Christians that should be false. That was the point earlier. And as he's elaborating and fleshing this out, he's saying here in verse 15, one of the things that will happen is if you live quiet lives and you submit to the government, you'll show false accusations to the contrary to be a lie. You will silence people making accusations. The idea is sort of that their mouths will be clamped. You can almost picture sort of a ravenous dog putting a muzzle on them. That's the language there. So you get these vile unbelievers spewing lies about Christians. They'll be shown to be untrue and eventually it will shut their mouths. If you consistently and faithfully over and over live in submission to the government. You'll silence the ignorance of foolish men. The idea here is not a lack of knowledge of something. This is a spiritual issue. The willful, darkened heart of an unbeliever that rejects the revelation of God. Romans 1, 21 and 22 says this, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. All Peter is doing is saying, this is unbelievers. It's the ignorance of foolish men. Now before we get too high and mighty, we were those ignorant foolish men before we came to faith. It's not as though they're a different breed. That was us. But Peter is saying this. Our quiet submission to the government will prove that many of the accusations against us are false and eventually people will shut up. Even unbelievers. So let me try and sort of piece this together again. Peter is saying this. Unbelievers are going to accuse Christians of wrongdoing. It's interesting at the time of the writing of the New Testament, some of the accusations against Christians 
that would cause the Roman government to get uneasy is that the Christians are rebelling against the emperor. The Christians are fomenting an insurrection. Wasn't hard for the Roman governing authorities to believe initially because the Christians were primarily from the nation of Israel. They were Jewish people who came to faith initially. And the Jewish people had been a thorn in the Roman governmental side for many years because they wanted freedom from Rome. So to accuse someone of being a rebel against Rome, not only was it guaranteed to get them in trouble, it was believable in the early church. Here was the point. At that time, the unbelieving world was watching those people called Christians looking for something to accuse them. Nothing changed. 2,000 years later, that's still happening. In Luke 6, verse 7, there's an imagery that just captured it for me. It said, The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him, meaning Jesus, closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. Particularly in this day and age, I think Christians are under somewhat of a microscope. Even more so because everything that anybody does is broadcast around the world with Twitter and Facebook and everything in two seconds. Now it's interesting, Jesus was able to silence the Pharisees and Sadducees by his righteousness. Matthew 22, verse 34 says, But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. Here's the point. Ultimately, even the wicked unbelievers couldn't accuse him of certain things. They just had to shut up because it was proved a lie. That's what our lives are supposed to do. And one of the ways in which our lives are supposed to do it is because we are the best citizens of any country wherever we are. And for us today, it means we're the best citizens in this county, in this state, in this country that there are. We're not rebels. We're not troublemakers. Again, that doesn't mean if the government tells us to sin that we go along. At that point, we would respectfully defy their orders and take our punishment. I think sometimes Christians today think, well, we got the Second Amendment, so I got a bunch of guns, and if the government comes for us, we'll be ready. I think that's an unbiblical response. What did Jesus do? Peter put away the sword. You know, there may come a time where we have to defy the government, but if we do, even then, we do it not with a gun in our hand, but with prayer on our lips. Perhaps with a Bible in our hand. So there are all kinds of accusations today against Christians. Of great variety. You've heard some of them. You're not interested in justice for the oppressed, you Christians. You want to lock everybody up in jail and throw away the key. You Christians just want to legislate morality by criminalizing sin and make everybody follow your views of the world. You guys hate sinners, especially homosexuals, and you just want to punish them and you want to arrest them and make their lives miserable. You guys are hypocrites. You hated Bill Clinton for his immorality, but now all of a sudden you're putting Trump bumper stickers on your car and he's more immoral than Bill Clinton even. On and on it goes. And there are times where any one of us can be hypocrites and we foolishly do something that catches the eye of the news. Can you imagine the headlines today for King David's sin? Twitter would blow right up. 
I don't have Facebook, but I guess everybody's news feed would be day by day the salacious details. He did this with Bathsheba. Can't believe he killed Uriah. It was scandalous. So here's the point. Occasionally, even believers sin and we ask for forgiveness. The world's not forgiving. But on a daily basis, a lot of what is said about individual Christians isn't true. Of course, we understand we get lumped in with the word Christian doesn't have a meaning anymore in America because people carry that label that are practicing all kinds of wicked sins and there are people calling themselves Christians who call themselves pastors who are preaching all kinds of foolishness. But our defense is to live the right way. And one of the ways is that we live quiet, submissive lives to the government. We can't control all of Christendom. But we can help set a testimony for Lakeside. This is our little corner of God's people. And at Lakeside, we shouldn't be rebels. We shouldn't be noisy, angry people. We should submit. We should pray for our leaders for all of our leaders, Republican or Democrat or Independent, at every level of government from top to bottom. Remember, the ultimate goal is that we lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Our real issue is to spread the gospel. And if we're out fighting our government, not only are we damaging our testimony, but we're missing our true calling. So let me encourage you. Don't move quickly past these teachings. We've still got some more time here with some more comprehensive finish. Hopefully next week we'll finish the remainder of this, verses 16 and 17. But remember, not only is it a matter of doing the right thing, but it's projecting the correct message to the world. This is God's will. And He expects our testimony to impact the loss. Join me as I close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, each one of us at any given moment in time struggles to obey your word. Lord, we want to do the right thing and so often we find ourselves doing the wrong thing. Lord, in this one area, I pray that you'd work in our hearts. I pray for holy lives in every aspect. But Lord, it's hard at times to submit to our government. Our political leaders inflame our passions, positively and negatively. I know my own struggle, Lord. I can't read the headlines without realizing that what's going on in Washington stirs my heart, but not for the good. So I pray for each one of my brothers and sisters in this room. Help us, Lord, to fight against the sinful tendencies that we have to want to go blow up our government. Not literally, of course, Lord, but figuratively. We want to 
cause disruption at times. We want to do certain things that aren't becoming of your children. Lord, help us see our place in America as you see us. Help us remember that we're just aliens and strangers. Lord, we need wisdom to know when to be quiet and when, like Paul, to exercise our legitimate rights for each one of us. That requires daily wisdom and guidance from your word. I just pray that you would help us to follow your will in this area. Pray that we would be examples to our neighbors, to our co-workers. Lord, I pray for the example that we are to our children, and to our brothers and sisters, and to our grandchildren. Lord, change us. Work in our hearts to bring about your perfect will in our lives, including in the area of submission to our government. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.